From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Right now, millions of Americans are voting for their next president. More than 70 million Americans have now cast their ballots in the US presidential election. We have got record numbers continuing to turn up to cast their votes. Personally, I think this is probably the most important election of my life anyway. It's been an election campaign like no other, overshadowed by a pandemic with nearly 10 million recorded cases of coronavirus and over 230,000 deaths. The country is now averaging more than 73,000 new cases a day, the highest one-week average of new cases. COVID-19 has been the key political battleground. Even without the vaccines, we're rounding the turn. It's going to be over. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. Racial justice protests, sparked by ongoing police violence, have also defined the US in 2020. It's against this backdrop that US voters make a choice between Donald Trump... Keep America great. ..and Joe Biden. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. Polls show Joe Biden with a strong lead, but there are warnings that might not be enough for him to beat Donald Trump. And in the dying days of the campaign, Trump has warned that a close or uncertain result could spark chaos. We're not going to know, and you're going to have bedlam in our country. Behind the scenes, both parties have been locked in a battle over voting rights. There are widespread concerns about misinformation campaigns and organised efforts to stop people from voting. Today, senior reporter for the Saturday paper, Rick Morton, on the fight against voter suppression and why, no matter who wins, the US is facing a fractured future. Rick, we're finally at the end of one of the most tumultuous and most significant election campaigns in US history. There's growing concern that the result could ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. What has Donald Trump been saying about the voting process? What's both fascinating and disturbing in terms of this election is that the result has been cast into doubt well before we even know what the result is. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Donald Trump has been happy to stoke, you know, these fears of electoral fraud in a nation that no longer trusts anything except mistrust. There's fraud. They found him in creeks. They found some with the name Trump. Just happened to have the name Trump just the other day in a waste paper basket. And he's repeatedly warned the election could be rigged. Because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election. The polls are looking really bad for Donald Trump. Our final NBC News Wall Street Journal poll completed overnight shows Joe Biden leading President Trump by 10 points among registered voters. Now, obviously, we know that the polls can be incredibly wrong, as per 2016. Um, but at the moment, they look bad, and Donald Trump seems to know that. We do very little polling because I'm not a huge believer in polling. I think you go out there and you fight, and you don't really need polls. You have to... In the US, the vote can and does come down to very slim margins in very specific states. And that's why so much energy is placed on suppressing votes in specific states uh, by those who would seek to maintain the power. So while the actual campaign has been going on with both candidates holding rallies and debating policy, as you would expect, there's been a kind of a shadow campaign behind the scenes. The focus of the campaign has become about who can vote. And a key battleground has been mail-in ballots, which is what we would call postal votes. OK, so there's this 
shadow campaign to try and suppress votes and therefore change the outcome of the election. Part of that is to do with postal votes, which have never before played such a large role. So is the fear here that those postal votes just won't get counted? Yeah, and and this all began a couple of months ago. You'll remember that there were directions for postal boxes to be removed from certain neighbourhoods by the uh, Trump-appointed Postmaster General. And and that started to stoke these fears that the Trump administration was actually attempting to reduce the amount of postal votes sent in. The Trump administration is facing accusations of intentionally crippling the U.S. Postal Service to interfere with the upcoming election. And given that we're also in the middle of a pandemic, particularly in the United States, where they just recorded their worst week in terms of new infections, residents also feared losing access to no-contact mailing options. The president defended his hand-picked U.S. Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, who changed policies to trim the budget by banning overtime and added trips to deliver the mail. So despite all of these fears, a lot of people have actually already cast their early postal votes. There have been almost 50 million mail-in ballots alone. And it is here where the contest becomes this bare-knuckle brawl for supremacy. And to help understand why, it's worth looking at a couple of key states. So if you look at Wisconsin, there have been these attempts, um, actually by, you know, lower courts, to provide a bit of a COVID-19-inspired buffer, which would allow for votes that arrive after election day to be counted. But that was blocked by the Supreme Court. A group of Wisconsin voters and disability rights groups, joined by state and national Democrats, had sued the state's legislature to get the mail-in ballot deadline extended in light of postal delays amid the global health crisis. So now it's the case that unless the postal vote arrives on time, as in by the close of election day, it won't be counted. And that will limit the amount of valid votes cast. And in Pennsylvania, another key state that was won by Trump by just 44,000 votes, Republicans have also fought attempts to provide some leniency as to when postal votes are considered eligible. The Pennsylvania lawsuit at the heart of the ruling is one of dozens of legal challenges nationwide targeting mail-in voting, backed by the Trump campaign. In fact, they've gone back to the Supreme Court for a second time, hoping that uh, the confirmation of a a new ultra-conservative justice in Amy Coney Barrett will get them over the line to crush that as well. Mm, right. So, OK, so at the the end result of all of this is that some postal votes in some states won't end up counted. That is, if they arrive after election day. Yeah, and that's right. And, you know, I, to put that in context, the Supreme Court doesn't like changing election rules um, close to an election. But most of these cases have been fought on the harrowing and unique circumstances of this pandemic where people are actually afraid of catching coronavirus because the nation hasn't fought it off or beaten it. And the people most affected in terms of the death rates and infection rates are low-income minority voters, particularly um, African-Americans and uh, Latinx communities. So you can understand why there's been such a rush for mail-in ballots, and that's where all of the fighting is now taking place. And we've also got these other examples. So some states such as Texas and Ohio have placed limits on the number of ballot collection points to just one per county. So many voters face over an hour's round trip just to drop off their vote. In fact, it's almost two hours round trip. It's 161 kilometres in in some places. When you take a step back and look at all of this from a global point of view, all of these strategies work to suppress the votes of people who are actually trying to cast their ballot. But there's really another big issue here, and that's the attempts to actually reach people before they consider posting a vote or get into a ballot box at all. 
And considering Michigan was decided by fewer than 10,000 votes in 2016, discouraging 12,000 likely Democrats to vote could have a massive effect. And that has been perfected since 2016. And it's, you know, the dark art of mass disinformation using technology, using social media. And these robocalls alone could impact who our next president is. And, and that has really come home uh, to roost during this election. We'll be back after this. As a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, the Saturday Paper, and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rick, after the last US election in 2016, it became clear that there had been foreign interference, particularly from Russia, to spread misinformation. So to what extent has that been happening again this time around? Well, there's no doubt that there have been attempts to spread misinformation again from Russia and Iran, but also many suspect from internal and domestic actors. Um, And, you know, while there have been some attempts by social media platforms to curb the spread of misinformation on the scale we saw in 2016 and to increase transparency, it's still happening. And in fact, it's become much more sophisticated. So again, it's people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and people of colour who have been targeted by these misinformation campaigns. That if you vote by mail, your personal information will be part of a public database that will be used by police departments to track down old warrants. A really good example is in Michigan and Pennsylvania, where minority voters have been receiving robocalls falsely warning them that mail-in voting would result in the harvesting of their private information to be sold to debt collectors and to the police. The robocall making its way through Detroit makes claims that are outright false and incendiary. Today, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said the call is using racially charged stereotypes to deter voting by mail. And Associate Professor Keisha Middlemass from Howard University has been looking into this. And we know from 2016, you shave off one or two percent in a few communities, and that can literally change the outcome of the election. Dr Middlemass told a a forum that was run by the Brookings Institution um, early Thursday morning our time last week that while immigration fear campaigns go out particularly to Spanish-speaking voters, black voters get a different one altogether. For the black community, their racial messages and the misinformation is around like, oh, if you have a vote-in ballot, your information will use um, to collect your back child support that's in arrears. Or you will, if you've got an old, if you vote by mail, they'll, the government will use that information to get you on an old warrant. And so these really racialized um, misinformation is used to target very particular communities to instill fear in them so they don't vote. So, Rick, what could the actual consequences of this kind of strategy be in terms of who comes out to vote? 
It's really fascinating because the dynamic in this election has changed so markedly since 2016. And, you know, I was listening to Dr Ravi Perry, who's the the chairperson of the political science department at Howard University. All of that, I think, has resulted in many D.C. voters east of the river, particularly those that are African-American, becoming that much more engaged this time around than they were four years ago. And there's kind of like different um, factions of um, African-American voters. There are some who are kind of just so disillusioned by the fact that they continue to be targeted by these disinformation campaigns and they're kind of worn down by all of this effort. And yet the numbers don't lie. We've had extreme numbers of voter turnout among uh, the African-American community. And it's almost like he was saying that they've, they're over it, but they're over it in a way that makes them want to fight back. And this is their way of doing it. And I, and I do suggest that perhaps some of that is due to the fact that many folks are motivated by uh, the concern that they see perhaps associated with this current administration and the level of misinformation that they may have experienced. Maybe they were so, you know, just kind of apathetic in previous elections because it didn't feel like much was at stake. But now they've had four years of Donald Trump and they know that the stakes are high. Okay, Rick, so we've got misinformation, which is designed to stop people from voting. There's concerns about postal votes and them not being counted at all. So what do you think all of this will mean when it comes to getting a result in the election, but also, and more importantly, perhaps the acceptance of that result? So in America, they've always had these tactics. You know, voter suppression is almost as old as the nation itself in many ways. But the volume of disinformation the sheer scale of the legal um, attempts to try and keep people in their place is unprecedented in this election. And that's how the Republicans see themselves winning. It's almost like they've given up on the idea that they are there to represent the people of America because the people they want to vote for them will vote for them and everyone else is fair game. And if Joe Biden and the Democrats do win, the result may not be known on Tuesday night, which is Wednesday morning our time, it may even be days or weeks. And if Joe Biden doesn't win, then I, I mean, I can't even consider what, you know, Trump is able to achieve in his next four years. I mean, he's appointed more judges in a single term than uh, any president in modern history at the same point in their tenure. And more importantly, I think, beyond that, the kind of, this is happening all over the world in different parts, but the mindset of an entire generation is being poisoned by just this false narrative of division and hatred and the fact that everyone else is against them. And once you've sown that into a kind of a populace, it's very hard to unwind that. It's very hard to get the trust back into the institutions, into the the positions like the president and the White House staff because it's just been so utterly defaced in, in every way, shape or form. And that's where the real battle is. And I honestly don't know what happens. Um, no matter who wins the election, I don't know how you un- unwind any of that. Mm, such a tense moment in time, Rick, for the US and also for the rest of the world. Yeah, well, I feel like people say things are a tipping point all the time, but this really does feel like a tipping point. Later today, we'll be releasing a special episode of 7am. I'll be speaking to our reporter on the ground in the US, Oscar Schwartz. As the results start to come in, we'll break down the initial figures and we'll discuss who's likely to become the next president of the United States. 
make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app and keep an eye on your feed. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, a terror attack in Vienna has left at least three people dead, according to Austria's Interior Minister. Among the three confirmed dead was one of the attackers who was shot by police. It's unclear how many attackers still remain at large. The attack took place on the last night before the city went into a COVID-19 lockdown. And in New South Wales, the state government is urging residents in Sydney's southwest to come forward for testing if they have symptoms of coronavirus. A new case yesterday was linked to an existing cluster in the west of the city. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.